0: Well, yes, in this series, we've been looking at the fact that although most of us understand and conceive of the Lord's Prayer as something which we kind of just recite, you know, in a couple of seconds. Our Father in Heaven, we we, most of us conceive of or have experienced the Lord's Prayer in that way. What we've been doing over the past six weeks is examining the Lord's Prayer as what Jesus says, pray like this that this is meant to be a, a model for prayer, a, a paradigm. Uh, the language that I keep using is a skeleton. Uh, kind of, This is the model, the framework of prayer to which we then kind of bring our own requests and our own words uh, to each of those things. And so the skeleton, as it were, the model, is kind of these six words that we've been looking at over the past six weeks. And so we looked at the father movement, name, kingdom, bread, forgive. And this brings us today, this week, to verse 13. Do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. The end goal in all of this is that as we have moved through the series, that in little increments of two, five, or 10 minutes on each movement, you might be able to pray 15, 30 minutes, or even an hour over the course of the past six weeks. And so for those, some of you that are new, the goal isn't, you know, you just jumping right into that, you know, right now. The goal has been, for those who are part of our church, that as we've been walking through this series, that week by week you've been able to lean it stretch a little bit more, adding each of these. And so we've got one last, which is, again, this movement of do not bring us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one, which is, in my humble opinion, the most difficult movement of the Lord's Prayer to understand. Because at first glance, it sounds like we're praying for God not to do something that he wants to. Don't bring us or don't lead us into temptation. Sounds like God had planned to tempt you. And then you were like, don't bring me to temptation. He's like, all right, you said the words, like he shrugs and he's like, I guess I won't. Or others of us, we rightfully, we, we quote from passages like James 1.13, which says that God doesn't tempt anyone, which is true, yes and amen, but then why are we praying for God not to do something that he doesn't do? Are you with me? Yeah. Like, this is kind of a weird line. So for the first thing we need to examine is we've got to do some Bible nerd hat moment at the beginning before we get into things, because this is what sets us up. So Bible nerd hat on with me. The first comes by looking at this word temptation in the Greek that Matthew is writing is this word uh, perismos. And it has a wide range of what it can be used to talk about. So it can be translated as a test, a trial, examination, assessment, but also with it, a trap or a temptation. So it's this really nuanced word that kind of identifies that a certain situation can look by all matters as being kind of the same thing, but have a different intent behind it right it can be an opportunity to prove what you know and be you know show where you're at or it can be a trap to pull you down here's an analogy hopefully this is helpful as you think about a good professor she gives her students a pop quiz right or a good teacher and for her, this pop quiz is an opportunity for the students to um, identify where they're at in the information that they've been learning, for them to put into practice all they've been storing up over the year, and for them to even get some kind of grade point average bumps-ups for the work that they've done. It's an opportunity, right? But then you have a bad professor or a bad teacher, And what she does is out of spite for her students, gives the pop quiz not as an opportunity, but as a trap, right? To go after the grade point average, right? To pull them down and put them in their seats. That's what you get for skipping, right? So both could be the same pop quiz. Almost both could have the same content in the questions and yet both are motivated. One is a trap and one is an opportunity. And so when we come into this story of the scriptures, what we find is that while God never ever tempts anyone, he all the time from Adam and Eve to Jesus and beyond will bring his people into places of testing. Opportunities for them to choose trust and life and to follow in what God has been doing within them, for that, to, for that to birth into new ways, for them to grow and develop in new ways, right? You find that all of the time. And yet right alongside it, whenever God leads his people into those places, there's one that Jesus in the Lord's prayer refers to as the evil one, who seeks to twist and bend and manipulate that opportunity into a trap? And so, most of us think about temptation, and we think of—if you're like me, growing up watching Tom and Jerry cartoons—we hear the word temptation, we think of the, like the little devil cat, right, on like Tom's shoulder, Mwah! like you know, like trying to get him to do something deceitful, you know, to lie or do something. You know, most of it is killing the mouse, but. But the reality is, is that temptation with Matthew and what Jesus is getting at is a wide range, a different way of thinking about and conceiving about situations. That anything that you walk into could even simultaneously have within it both an opportunity and a trap. And it all depends on who's the one that's at work within the situation. And so that's why it's crucial. If you're the kind of person that marks in your Bible, this is my second and kind of last Bible nerd moment for a moment. But if you're the kind of person who marks or writes in your Bible, That little four-letter preposition, do not bring us into temptation, is is where all scholars, all commentators go, that's the sweet, that's the big spot, that's the thing to focus on with all of our confusion here. Because in the Greek language, to go into something, it can be used to talk about geography, going into a building, but very regularly, when when it's talked about something like a person or power, it's about talking about coming under their control or their guidance, their influence, or their power. And so one of Paul's primary ways of talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus is going into, being in Christ, which means so much, but at the very least means you coming under the influence, the guidance, the power, and the control of Jesus. And here then what the prayer is, is God, do not bring me in into. Don't let me fall under the control, the influence, or the power of the temptation, of the trap within the trial. How are we doing so far? Great. So then what this brings out of us then is that the prayer is not a prayer of God, keep me away from temptation. God, help me sidestep and dodge trials and tests. But God, in the midst of the tests and trials that come, help me get through them. Help me get over them. And this is a wildly different way than most of us pray, don't it? Most of our prayers are, God, would you make my life very comfortable and very easy, and I never have to go through any tests, trials, or temptations. And yet Jesus here assumes, expects, and invites you not to pray, God, keep me from difficult things, keep me from my faithfulness being tested too. God, would you deepen my faith in you through those tests? Would you grow me in new ways? And so if our request of Jesus, like the disciples, is teach us to pray, and Jesus says, pray like this, then what we have to do is allow Jesus' framework and model for prayer, in particular around tests, trials, temptations, examinations, assessment. We need to let Jesus' understanding shape us. So for the remainder of our time today, what I wanna do is I wanna look at, together, um, two, two truths that this prayer gives us about trials, tests, and temptations and then two ways through trials, tests, and temptations before we bring it all together with daily practice. Sound good? So first, the two truths. The first truth about trials, temptations that Jesus gives is first and foremost, to expect them. To expect them as part of the daily life that you go through, as daily as your need for forgiveness and as daily as your need is for prayer. I didn't have this in my notes, but can we throw the Lord's Prayer back up there? I wanna show you guys, this is just a little link here. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. Notice that 12 and 13 both begin with and. So the idea is that this is a continuation of daily petition. So you have a need for daily bread and I have a need for daily forgiveness and a daily need to forgive others. And I have a daily need to not go into the temptation, to be delivered from the evil one. So Jesus expects and invites and teaches you to expect tests, trials, and temptations. In the words of 1 Peter chapter 4, Dear friends, this is one of Jesus' disciples. He would have been sitting around the the group listening to Jesus when he taught the Lord's prayer. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Again, perisamos, the temptation, the fiery assessment, the fiery examination comes among you two, and that's it. And its verb, test you as if something unusual were happening to you. We had Kara over for dinner, and for some reason, my daughter Emma asked her, what's your favorite Bible verse? And she said that my favorite Bible verse is this one because she just loves how, how, how you know, un- the understanding of this, how funny this is that you're just having the Bible. Don't be surprised. Like, why are you surprised? Why are you flabbergasted by the trial and by the suffering? And and it is, it's a funny line because it's, he's getting at the reality that to follow Jesus into discipleship is the daily experience of tests, trials, and temptations. And so the first invitation that Jesus gives is not to be surprised by them. But once again, this is predominantly what most of us suffer with, what most of us struggle with is the moment the fiery trial comes, the moment a test, an examination, a moment of stretching and development and growth an opportunity, is everybody is surprised. We're, we're blown away by it, flabbergasted. I can't believe it. How did, how did this, how did we get here? What, why me is like the regular, what did I do to it? right? We're surprised by it. And this happens both in the really, really big things, the life-shattering trials and tests, those that come in just a few of them over the lifetime, the cancer diagnosis, the the struggle with infertility, the betrayal within a relationship, the the career stalling out, those big, deep, what happens there just as much as it happens in the daily irritations of the boss, your spouse, your lack of spouse, your children. We, we, We go through those things, and yet even on a daily and at the big level, we get surprised, we're blown away. How in the world, why me? And hear me, this is part, this is half, at least half, 49% of the enemy's temptation in the midst of the testing place is to get you surprised and finding you off balance by your surprise to turn that surprise into doubt and for that doubt to give root to to ugly fruit. So the moment comes upon me, I'm surprised, and then it turns into, well, God must not be for me, God must not be with me, and so then that gives root to anger, to control, to manipulation, to distraction, to disengagement through binging, whether that comes in a bottle or your streaming service of choice, right? Then the thing comes, and I disengage from my life, because why? I'm surprised that I'm here. And so we get a deeper disengagement from the life that I've been invited into and the opportunity turns into the trap that the enemy intended by first just catching you off the fact that you, you didn't see it coming. And so Jesus is so for his disciples in this in saying, I want you to first and foremost expect that these things will come. To expect that trials and temptations, the stretching and testing seasons are part of following me. And in doing so, to trade out your surprise and your astonishment with surprisingly an expectation that leads to joy. Peter continues in verse 13. Instead, don't be surprised when you come to the fiery trial. Instead, rejoice, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah, of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. You see, what what happens is one, when I begin to expect as part of my discipleship, trials and temptations and the stretching seasons, when I begin to expect them, and it is not, it is not, hear me, that it somehow takes away a drop of the suffering, but that it infuses it all with a deep joy that somehow is able to, to live within the suffering, to live within the tension. Because a joy that comes knowing that this is my share in Jesus and this is my journey towards the glory that he's working within me and within this world. And so what ends up happening is when Jesus teaches us to expect these things is that I begin to see trials, tests, temptations in the big and the little, not as an interruption, but as the highway to the kingdom life within me. And so the first thing that Jesus teaches us is if you are a disciple, if you are going to follow me and have my prayer be your prayer, the first thing you have to do is not be surprised, but to expect trials and temptations. But the second thing that Jesus teaches us is the real enemy in our trial. Look at the second line, verse 13. There's two prayers within this movement. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from, and it is not pain, Deliver us from suffering. Deliver us from confusion. Deliver us from anxiety. Don't deliver us, from, right? Deliver me from the, from this being an, un, an uncomfortable situation. Deliver me from my discomfort. But what? Deliver me from the evil one, or just as it can be translated, evil. And so this is the corollary too. Don't bring me into the control. Don't bring me under the power of temptation, but Keep me from doing what evil, what the evil one would have me do. Keep me from doing evil. What Jesus is naming is the true enemy in the, tr- in the season of the testing and the trial and the, the test is not the situation itself, but sin. The true enemy in that season is not the difficulty. It's not the pain. The true enemy is evil itself. Eugene Peterson writes, pain isn't the worst thing. Being hated isn't the worst thing. Being separated from the one you love isn't the worst thing. Death itself isn't the worst thing. The worst thing is failing to deal with reality and becoming disconnected from what is actual. The worst thing is trivializing the honorable, desecrating the sacred. He says, we don't become mature human beings by getting lucky or cleverly circumventing loss and certainly not by avoidance and distraction. If the true enemy is not the situation, but evil, then that is what Jesus calls us to put our attention in. Where our prayers begin to shift from God, get me out of here, to God, would you develop and build me into the kind of person that gets through this? Would you make me the kind of person that's able to be faithful? Because again, the difficulty, the problem, the the true enemy within this situation is not the situation itself, it's sin. Consider, just as an analogy, two individuals, who get hit by the same storm of life. The same great big storm, and two people go through it, and one of them, in the midst of the storm, they turn bitter, they become selfish, selfish. they become self-conceited and concerned and overly focused on their own needs, and they turn in on themselves. They become angry with life, bitter, Right? in the midst of the storm. And on the other side, when the storm begins to settle, what they've turned into is something, something ugly. It's ruined, the storm ruined them. And then you have someone else who goes through the same storm and what they choose is, is humility and faithfulness and weakness and vulnerability before God, but still an openness to receive and trust that God's hand is at work in it. And what happens as the storm settles on the other side for them is, is they're turned into something glorious. See, the reality is that the problem isn't the storm. The, prob- the thing is, is the evil, the situation within it. There's that old, uh, that old saying that all, all the water in the oceans can't sink a boat. As long as it stays outside of it. But the moment that the evil comes in, that boat, it doesn't take much to take it down. And so in the same way, the way that Tim Keller puts it is... 10,000 pounds, I think he said what he said, 10,000 pounds of suffering can't hurt you, but one ounce of sin can ruin you. That's what Jesus is getting at here, that the main problem within the testing season is not the situation itself, but what the enemy is trying to bring out of you. And so we pray, Jesus, Father, deliver me from evil. Deliver me from the evil one. As Jesus prayed for us in John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples, I am not praying that you take them, being you and I, his disciples, out of the world, out of the place of testing and difficulty and suffering and loss, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Again, most of our prayers, we pray that God would somehow take us out of the world, have us float along the brokenness of the world. And yet Jesus' prayer for you and I is not that we would be brought out of the world, but that we would be steadfast, that we would be delivered from the evil one in the midst of it. And so when we bring these two pieces together, the two truths that Jesus invites us to realize about our trials is on one hand that we need to learn to expect them, to read them as part and parcel of following him as our discipleship, not so that we can avoid them, but so that we can infuse them with the joy to see them for what they really are, opportunities, means of entering into the kingdom life. And simultaneously, at the same time, to see that as we make our way through, the thing that we're trying to get through is not the situation. The thing we're trying to get through without going into is sin, is evil, is selfishness and bitterness and brokenness and anger. So then how do we make that way through? We can find two two ways through. Two ways through in the passage. The first is by reading the sixth movement in light of the first movement. You'll see the Lord's Prayer back behind me. The prayer opens with our father in heaven. And that means that everything else in the Lord's prayer, both grammatically and theologically, flows from that first statement. What this means is that you are meant to read your temptation and your journey into the testing place, your necessary deliverance from the evil one in light of your adoption as sons and daughters of your Abba in heaven. That through the accomplished work of Jesus on the cross, of Him bringing you into the family of God, infusing with the Holy Spirit, by which you know now God as Abba Father, you read your test, your trial, your moment of stretching, not through anything other than I am the beloved, adopted son, daughter of God that he loves me as much as he loves Jesus. He is present and attentive, he cares for me. And what this does is it allows you to see the temptation, to see the test from a radically new perspective. You never have to doubt if what you're going through is God's damnation on you. You never have to worry if God's trying to trap you or this is some kind of payback for what you did 20, 30, 10 years or five minutes ago. Every test, every temptation is God is always giving, yes, opportunities in the midst of them, but God never have to worry that God somehow has it out for me in the midst of this because that's that's what destroys most of us. Because remember, what does the enemy do when he finds us surprised is he turns it into doubt. And if we can stop that loop from beginning, that's the place that you make your way through is by trusting in the midst of this that my God is for me, my Father is with me, And so all of that I'm, all I'm going through within this broken world that he's seeking to make right is not a sign of his absence, but it is the very place where I will find him present. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says, No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God, your Abba Father is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able But with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. When you trust God as your faithful father, every test, every trial, every assessment, examination, season of whatever that you go through is you're never concerned that it's a dead end of God's judgment on you, but that God has always gone before you paving the way to faithfulness. That he's got a plan, that he's at work in bending this situation As Romans 8 says, he's working all things together for the good of those who love them, even this season of testing. And so when we have this is that this just opens our eyes to begin to look for the light in the midst of the trial, to look for the way that's been paved, not out of here, but through here. And so the first way through is by trusting in your faithful father, that he is at work and every opportunity that he gives is never a trap of his judgment, but it is always an invitation of walking with him. Which leads us to the second, which is to read this movement, to get through temptation, to get through the test, to get through and be delivered from the evil one by walking with the priestly presence of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet he is without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. You can keep this up here because this is just so good. So what is happening here is when we begin to walk Into trials and temptations, what Hebrews chapter four is saying is that there is nothing that you will go through which Jesus is not able to lay his hand on your shoulder and say, me too. I've been through this. I've felt this. I know what this is like. I know you've gone through betrayal. I've been betrayed. You're facing down death. I've faced down death. You've been written off by everyone. So have I. There's nothing that, no testing season that you've been through. No temptation of the enemy that Jesus can go, you know, tough luck. That seems really rough. I'll pray for you, I guess. Jesus is always able to say, me too. And yet the invitation of Hebrews 4 is that as good as it is to hear Jesus on our side saying, me too, he also says, follow me, I know the way out of this mess. Follow me, I know the way out of this mess. That's precisely what's happening here in verse 16, that we may approach the throne of grace with boldness so we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I've always read that as thinking that it was about forgiveness. So God knows what we've gone through. He's without sin. And so if you mess up, don't worry, there's grace and forgiveness. That's what, how linked together those were. The grace and the mercy here is precisely for Jesus to lead you through that, to follow you yet without sin. To follow For you to follow him without sin, yes. And so what this means is that as we begin to walk through any test, any trial, Jesus lays his hand on his shoulder and says, me too, and follow me. I know the way out of this mess. And the key place, there's many, but one of the key places we find this happening in the life of Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane on the night before he goes to his cross. As he's facing down the great, the trial, the temptation, the trap of the enemy that is his cross and he looks forward at it and he prays to his father, Abba, all things are possible through you. If there's any other way to bring about the kingdom work that you want to other than that, that'd be really nice right now he says, but if not, your will be done, not mine. And he moves into it. What does Jesus do in this moment? This is what it looks like to go through the first way out of temptation. Jesus says, how do you get through it? It's faithful trust in your father. It's faithful trust that God is the one that's at work. And if if he's bringing you through and you're calling out and that he's moving you through the temptation, moving you through the trial, moving you through the difficulty, that in that moment, Jesus says, when he says, follow me, he goes, follow me in trusting the Father. And as you do this, you are not alone. Jesus, who laid his hand on your shoulder and said, me too, walks with you through the test. One great example of this is in Daniel chapter three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three um, oh, the slaves um, brought out of Israel, renamed and brought into the Babylonian kingdom, and assumed to be brought in to participate in all that the Babylonian pagan empire would have for them. So Nebuchadnezzar had developed a, a kind of new worship strategy, political worship strategy, um, and, uh, and they want no part of it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, we don't need to give you an answer to this question, you asking us to worship you. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire that he's threatening them with. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But if not, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Pause here. This is and this is what we see with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as you find here with Shadrach and Co. Our, all things are possible through our God. And so we fully trust that he can do anything. And yet, but if not. You see, there's, there's two failures when you're going through the test, the testing wilderness, when you're going through the difficulty situation. The first is a failure to ask God for a deliverance that would bring you even away from the situation. To ask God for the miracle that would alleviate the cancer, that would alleviate the infertility, like to not pray and believe that God can do something in this moment, that's a failure. It's a failure to trust in God and who he is and what he's capable of doing. But on the other side is what oftentimes people who go yes and amen, miracles today, the power of the spirit at work in the world, the failure they get into is they begin to demand those things from God to presume that God is always going to show up in that way. And so the failure on either side is one, not to trust that God is powerful, and the other one is not to trust that God knows what he's doing beyond I do, to believe that God is an accessory to my comfort. The way through is to go, I have full dependency and trust that my God can do whatever he pleases. And so if he wants to yank me out from the fiery furnace, if he wants to find some other way of redemption other than the cross, he can do it. But if not, I am going to follow through this test, even if it takes me to the cross, even if it takes me to the fiery furnace. Story continues. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was custom, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and toss them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I now see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. You see, the reality is, is that when we say, but if not, and God is at work within the test, even in the way when we would much rather have him just pluck us out of here, Then what happens is even though we go into the fiery trial, as first Peter called it, that what we find is that even when we're going through that, is that as we find ourselves trusting in our faithful Father, we end up finding that Jesus doesn't just say, me too, follow me, I know the way out, but Jesus, the Son of God, is walking with us in the fire. He is bringing his presence to us. He's more present to us in a way that we could have experienced outside of the fire. We find a revelation of his presence with us in a way that we wouldn't have known sitting in comfort on our couch. So to bring this all together, this is the life that Jesus has for us when it comes to trials and tests and temptations. We expect them. We know and identify that the true enemy within them is not the situation but the sin. We walk in a deep trust in our faithful father. And as we do, we find the the priestly presence of Jesus with us in the midst of it. How do you pack all of this into one movement in the Lord's Prayer? How do you do this in two, five, ten 10 minutes? And here's the great gift of the Lord's prayer is that if you have already prayed the five minutes leading up to this one, you already have. You see, most often, most people look at the sixth movement and they believe that it's almost like Jesus forgot to say like the end. That's a weird place to end the prayer. At least it seems that way. Don't bring us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And so we've added later on, those who have kind of missed some of these dynamics, they've added for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Which is great. I'm not here to like dog on that. But I do think that we're missing something when we assume we need to add something. The much better, better reading of Matthew, what's going on here, is that deliver us from the enemy, bring us not into temptation, is the culmination of the Lord's Prayer. It is the climax and the purpose of what every line up to this point has been building towards. If our Father in heaven is the one that all grammar and theology flows from in the Lord's Prayer, don't bring us into temptation and deliver us from evil, is the purpose and the intent of which the prayer is moving. Some of you haven't been won over yet to me thinking this, so I'm I'm gonna prove it to you right now. (laughs) So remember, Jesus, when he teaches the Lord's Prayer, and here in Matthew, this is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six, began in Matthew chapter five. This is immediately after Jesus has just come out of being in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, and yet remaining sinless. Let's just read the story. And see, if you guys can't catch it, don't worry, I'll I'll fill you in. But let's see if you guys can catch it. Uh, You can throw Matthew 4, Verse one up there. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Pause right here. Notice, Jesus gets led by God into the tempting place, but that's not God that tempts him there. It's Satan, right? See that? Verse two. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Thanks, Matthew. (laughs) Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give you his angels' orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against stone. Jesus told them, it is written, do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and began to serve him. So here we have, Jesus goes into the testing place. The enemy comes with temptation and yet Jesus emerges like, like, a scouting party for humanity who actually wins the whole war. He now knows the lay of the land of the enemy and has dealt the death blow to the commanding officer of overcoming sin and defeating it and saying no where all of us so regularly say yes. And now he returns back from his victory to his disciples, those who want to follow after him and enjoy the life that he has. And he says, I've been through the territory. I know what it contains and gives the Lord's prayer as the weapon and means to get through. T- just track with this for a moment. Jesus is the first and t- twice, that this, that the, only second, um, the only thing the devil says twice in the whole exchange is the temptation over Jesus's identity. He says, if you are the son of God, it's a temptation of his identity. So Jesus shuts it down. And how does he teach his disciples to pray? By first and foremost, cementing themselves and their identity as children of our father in heaven. What is happens next? Is that the enemy goes after his worship. If you'll worship me, I'll give you all these things, right? And so Jesus says, no, and shuts it down. Worship God, serve him alone. And then his disciples, who he knows he's gonna send back into the testing place, he says, trains them to every single day, your name be honored as holy. He goes after and he tempts him with glory and fame and power and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus shuts it down and then he teaches his disciples in order to make it through, daily I'm teaching you to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. That's the true place of kingdom, fame and glory and power that you're longing for. It's not in anything of this world. It's in the kingdom that my father is bringing. Then the enemy goes after what? His needs. He tempts him over, this is what you need. This is what you actually, your needs should be taken care of. Your desires should be met. So take that into your own hand and and literally turn these stones into bread. Jesus shuts him down and says what? I'm not putting my God to the test, but then he teaches his disciples to pray daily. How do you get to say no to that kind of that kind of temptation is by daily praying. Give us this day our daily bread. Trusting God with my daily needs. I'm not gonna make stones into bread. I'm gonna receive them from my Father. So these keep continuing. The one that's missing in here is forgiveness because this, this, the enemy's got nothing on him. So Jesus knows you and me. He knows our weakness. And so daily he invites us to what? Pray and ask for forgiveness. For forgiveness so that we might shut up the primary two ways that the enemy will come after you is bringing back up the shame and the guilt from yesterday and from the day before and from the day before. And by daily cementing yourself and the forgiveness that God has brought about for you, you, you've muted the enemy before he can even talk. You see, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is giving his disciples a roadmap through temptation with each line being its own place for beauty and growth and development, and yet it's doing this counterformation of your soul so that over the course of your life, what the enemy seeks to bring against you, you will have a soul that's been formed into something glorious that's able to say no. Not by trying really hard, but simply by reflecting on who God is and what he's doing in your life. And so this is Jesus' way through. This is his model. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 a moment ago, when it said that God will always provide a way through for his people, when Hebrews chapter 4 says that we can boldly approach the throne of grace, my simple recommendation today is, what if the Lord's Prayer is precisely how God has done that? What if the Lord's Prayer is precisely how Jesus says, come and approach the throne of grace to find help in the time of need? What if the primary thing that we're meant to do when we face through temptation is not trying really hard or running circles or taking a cold shower, whatever the things that you do to make yourself not sin are. What if it became the place of reminding myself of my identity as a child of Abba, as his name being far more glorious than anything else this world has, of his kingdom being the true place of where beauty and honor and glory are found, that my needs are cared for and met by my father, that I have been forgiven of past guilt and shame. And so therefore, In the words of Romans chapter 13, the ending of Romans, Paul says that the God of all peace is going to crush the head of Satan under your feet. What if the Lord's Prayer is precisely how God is helping us do just that? And so the invitation of the Lord's Prayer is not some simple prayer practice of like, contemplating the Father, I feel so much more restful now because I've been quiet for a little bit this morning, right? That's great, (laughs) you can get an app to do that. What if Jesus is giving all this because he knows how difficult it is to follow him, because he expects the temptation, he expects the trial, and so Jesus, as a really good older brother, rabbi, friend, and king, says, this is the way through, and so we pray this every single day, and as we do, we find that our Father continues to answer the prayers Sometimes in the way that we think and oftentimes in the ways we never would have imagined. But we keep praying them, and what we find and what we're aiming towards is the day when this prayer will be full. Answered not just in part right here and now in the present, but answered fully in the future. When the Father comes to be the Father who's not just in heaven, but the Father who's on earth with his children when the name that is honored as holy covers the cosmos, when the kingdom comes in its fullness, when his will is done in its totality, when our daily needs are not just met, but our eternal ones are taken care of, when our sins aren't just forgiven, they're done away with, when we're not just delivered through temptation, when temptation is no longer a problem, the opportunities, the tests have been passed, and when we no longer need to be delivered from the enemy because he has been done away with forevermore, or... In one line, we pray and we wait for on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray.